James Horror Review. I'm your host, Just James, and today, a fucking <laughs> underwater cre- underwater double creature, underwater creature feature, double feature, under- an underwater creature double feature, Black Demon and Dagon. This is episode 35. hard to get out welcome back everyone this is the just james horror review and i'm your host just james today underwater creature double feature we have well we're going to start with the 2023 film black demon and then we're going to move on to the 2001 film dagon and you might wonder why a double feature why today why now why a c theme well I'm going to be honest with you, it's because I watched Black Demon and I thought it sucked, so it sucked. I didn't want the whole episode to be ruined, so I just picked another C-related thing, and Why Not Lovecraft is one of my faves, so I've been wanting to watch that film anyway, so we moved on to Dagon. So, let's start with 2023 Black Demon. Let's get into it. Alright, so Black Demon was directed by Adrian Grunberg. His other film credits are going to be Rambo, Last Blood, and Get the Gringo. I haven't seen Get the Gringo. I have seen Rambo, Last Blood. And it was okay. It had, I mean, you're basically just waiting for the Rambo kills the whole film. Other than that, it's weird. He just gets beat up and almost killed in some, I don't know, town in Mexico or South America. I can't remember where it was because I think his daughter or his daughter's friends or something like that got human traffic down there. And it's a very odd story. And he brings her home and he gets her all the way back to the house and she ends up dying. So then he has to kill all these people. And then I guess he's just this lone wolf walking the roads again like in the first one. So that's the whole movie. I didn't ruin anything because I promise you you're not watching for its cinematic like awesomeness or anything like that. It's just it is what it is it's a Rambo film anyway too much time on that the actors in this film are the one that you're going to notice is Josh Lucas he looks super familiar you're going to be like where do I know this guy from I know this face he looks like a couple of other actors in some horror films but I found out that he is the dude that was in the Forever Purge he was also in the Lincoln Lawyer which I think is where I remember his face from also such Session 9 which I saw forever ago I don't remember the movie whatsoever and um he was actually Craig McDermott in American Psycho. So, yeah. Uh, he was also in Sweet Home Alabama, which is, you know what, honestly, that's probably where I remember him from. Not going to lie. And uh, he's in that show Yellowstone that everyone bust a cowboy load over here recently. I haven't seen it, so I don't want to talk shit. It might be a good show. I don't know. I haven't seen it. The other face that you're not going to recognize that was in this film that you know is Hector Jimenez. I know I'm saying that wrong, and I apologize, but he was in Nacho Libre, he was the corn dude, he was also in Sharktopus and Wild Hogs, but when you see him in this film, particularly, I don't think you'll recognize him at first. Like, maybe your brain will kind of say, like, hey, this dude is somebody, but I can't remember, but anyway, that's him. He's a Nacho Libre guy. He's been in a a bunch of other films, but most of them are Spanish-speaking, so I don't think anyone's going to know any of those. Uh, that's going to pretty much do it for the notable actors. Uh, not to say that everyone else in the film, they actually did a good job. The acting in this film wasn't bad at all. I'll give them that. But it was just the, I don't know if it was just the pace of the film or whatever. It wasn't, you know, it just kind of looked like one of those sci-fi, 
late night movies. There really wasn't a whole lot to it. It did have a message with it that's pretty obvious throughout the whole film, so they don't try to hide that or anything like that. But we're going to start on an oil rig down in Mexico somewhere, and it's been deserted, and the town looks all run down and like shit. And our Josh Lucas character, he goes down there as an inspector, and as soon as he gets down there, he realizes that this once bustling rich town because of the oil rig and all the jobs that it created has turned to an absolute ghost town, just trash, like buildings are all torn down and and run down. The whole place is just a a slum, pretty much. just kind of looks like a slum. So the safety inspector guy, he goes down there, has his family. He wants to return to where he met his wife and kind of all this stuff started his career and he started making money and all that. And he wants to bring his family down there and show them, you know, how this happens, I guess, but also to take a trip down there to this oil rig. I don't know why you would think that's a good idea, but he's just trying to be sentimental and trying to show his kids and stuff like their roots from their mother's side of the family and that kind of stuff. So that's pretty much why everyone is down there. So that's what puts everyone down there at an oil rig in some, you know, uh, town in Mexico. So immediately they're uncomfortable because the place looks a wreck and they have a couple of awkward interactions with some locals. He ends up going to the oil rig alone because for whatever fucking reason, like no one else wants to go out there. They're scared of the black demon. And a lot of the scenes where like the locals are being a dick to him are really awkward. And at first you don't understand. It's not until later on in the film that you understand why him particularly, not just because he's, you know, a part of the, you know, oil machine. He's the man kind of thing. But you find out later on it's because of decisions that he personally made and signed, literally signed off on that has brought on a lot of the ruin and the pain and the poverty that exists in this town. Now, another thing that's weird is knowing that this town feels a certain way about him. He's like, okay, I'll just go down there, do my safety inspection. We'll get out of here. We'll go somewhere nice, and we'll still have a nice trip. But he leaves his whole family, like his wife and his two kids, at some random, you know, Oceanside bar, knowing that nobody wants him there. Seems unwise, but that's what he does. So, of course, the mom's sitting there with the kids, and a couple of, you know, bad hombres come over there and start, you know, fucking with her and stuff, and it's it's really awkward. So, she gets spooked. She goes, hassles a guy to, to boat them out there to the oil rig because she's like, screw this. I'm not staying here where it's dangerous. I'm going to go out there to where my husband is, you know, going to go do his inspection. But the thing you got to understand is, like I said, everyone's been saying, hey, we don't go out into the ocean anymore. The black demon is out there. And uh, this land is cursed and, you know, there's been a a curse put upon the land because of what we've done to Mother Earth and all this stuff. So, but she's like, well, fuck that. I'm not going to sit here and get, you know, assaulted by these creeps at the bar. I'm out. So even though the film is called Black Demon, and I think there is some lore to that. Like if you Google Black Demon, there's a whole bunch of stuff on it. It's not just some random naming of this big fish, you know, they use for the movie. But you'll notice throughout the film that, that the town has images all over the place of the Aztec god uh, Tlaloc. The Aztec god of rain and water, he's the giver of life, uh, giver of life to earth, and so it's set up real heavy in the beginning to let you know the importance of Tlaloc. And again, you can Google that, it actually is an Aztec god that was worshipped. It's the real, you know, they use that for the film, it's not just something made up for the movie. And as they go through the town, they're seeing, you know, effigies of this god and things that are made to him, places of worship, places where they can give offerings. 
and a couple of people, I think, even talk about how much they fear that God. And this, again, leads to where they talk about how we won't even go out into the ocean because of our fear of this God and his wrath. Now, another part here that they do that is kind of cool is we get to see the big shark pretty early in the film. Well, you get to see like a glimpse of him. You don't ever really get a full on, you know, Jaws style scene of this shark and the problem is just with the way things are now no one does animatronics anymore for films it's just going to be cgi so we're just going to have another big cgi shark and it's not even cool like you know the meg and that kind of stuff where it's got a lot of really right on shots of this cgi shark it's all just in the mist you know like in the darkness of the ocean you catch a glimpse of him there's one scene where he busts up out of the water and you get to see like how big he is compared to a small fishing boat which is pretty cool but other than that i mean you don't even really get to see him it's not that cool it's more about this dude on this oil rig which kind of makes this which was a part of why it was lame i mean it wasn't i hate to sit here and say that a shark film is lame because it's not a shark ploitation film which is what you know, a lot of stuff has been since Sharknado and all that kind of stuff, but this one was lame for not being that film, which is an odd thing to say that the the needle has, you know, turned that much to where now that's what you expect instead of a horror movie that has a shark instead of a shark horror movie, if that makes sense. But again, like I said, this movie more had a theme in it that that it wanted you to recognize, and that was the bigger message of the film, more so than just, hey, this is a big shark film. So our main character, he gets to the oil rig, his family comes out there, he finds out that there's only two people left on this whole entire rig. And the guy says, he's not a shark, he's a megalodon, and the two guys left believe it to be the black demon, and that he was released from the ground because the oil rig drilled into the earth and caused some kind of big spill to pour out into the ocean, and it wasn't checked, it was never plugged or stopped, and that's why Talak has released this huge megalodon out to curse their village in the waters that surround it. So I thought that was pretty cool because at first you're like, where'd this big shark come from, what's the deal? And for them saying that the god is cursing them, but once they make that connection, I was like, okay, all right, we're getting more on the believable scale, this is cool. And then what do they do? They decide to fuck it up by having the shark can cause you to hallucinate. So people start hallucinating. Like if you fall in the water, you start seeing all these body parts and shit floating around. And one guy thinks he sees like a bunch of boats out there waiting to rescue him and none of them are there, you know, and it just kind of gets off the wall. It try, it, it's almost tries to do too much. So long story short, the family ends up on this rig and they're screwed. There's no way off. There's no boat. There's no way to escape. So they make a plan to kill this Megalodon. But then we find out that actually a big reason why everything is crap is because this main guy, and I keep forgetting what his name is, he fudged a bunch of safety inspections and his wife ends up finding the these when they were looking for ways to get off the island and supplies and everything. She finds a bunch of paperwork in a safe that has his signature on it saying all these things are safe where he's overlooked all this safety. Like this thing never should have been in use. It was unsafe for humans. It was unsafe for the ocean. It was unsafe all the way around and he just signed off on everything to get rich. And we also find out that again that this thing's been spewing oil into the ocean for weeks and he puts two and two together and realizes that his company sent him down there pretty much to die. And so they're tying up all these loose ends and they can put the paperwork out and just say, hey, it's all on this guy. And yeah, he was their scapegoat. 
And so you might think, well, how'd they send him down there to die? How can they guarantee that he was going to get eaten by the shark? Well, they can't. So that's why at the beginning of the movie, show some guys putting a bomb on this rig. Of course, they get eaten by the shark. But yeah, so now there's a bomb on this rig. So not only are they trapped out there, but now they have like less than two hours to figure something out before the whole thing explodes and they're going to get dumped in the water anyway. But I, I, so yeah, I don't, you know, hey, I don't fucking know either. But there's a bomb. They hallucinate. And there's a megalodon, and they're trying to get off. And you know what? The There's parts of this where the dialogue is just beyond cheesy. I mean, like, cringe-worthy cheese type of dialogue in this film. The, there's these odd scenes with emotional flare-ups that seem to come out of nowhere. And, you know, at first I thought, well, maybe this dude's kind of going mad. You know, is, is this uh, Tlaloc, you know, fucking with his brain? And that's why he's kind of falling into these episodes of madness or whatever it is. No, it's just bad you know, I guess bad rock. I hate to say anything's bad because I'm not like I could. I've never wrote a film, but I'm telling you, just as the as the guy watching this movie, it just was not. I didn't enjoy the dialogue. Okay, sorry, writer man, I didn't like it. So just to wrap this sucker up real quick, the bad man ends up sacrificing himself to kill the Meg, which is what Talak is used to anyway, because they made reference to it later that like, well, he demands a sacrifice, and then that'll save the town, and he'll go back to being the giver of life and all this stuff. So he ends up. Coming up with a plan, they find some old, you know, uh, inflatable raft thing that they repair, and there's this big long scene about it, and he's like, I'm going to go down there to distract the shark, you guys get on this thing, get the hell up out of here, and that's what he does. But not before, he goes down there, cuts that bomb loose, and decides he's going to make himself the bait, have that bomb, kill himself, and kill the shark once and for all. Now all the stuff being said about this particular film, I will say this, the ending Made me cry a little bit. It did. It, it jerked on my heartstrings and got me, got me a little teary-eyed, you know. Toco mi corazón, way, no manches. I had a little, little, little tear go down the side of my face. Llore mucho, quebron. Mi corazón es suave. So, you know, it, if nothing else, the last 15 minutes is cool. It's the only cool 15 minutes in the whole fucking film. But, you know, there you go. So... The family's swimming out, and they're under the impression that Dad's coming back. And then he gets on the radio, and he sends out this really heartfelt radio transmission to his wife and kids, and he wants to right his wrongs, and blah, 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 and then boom, blah, dead, the end. So yeah, that's it. Oh, and there was a cool chihuahua in it. I don't remember his name, but he was a little hard-ass, and yeah, so that, that part was cool too. But uh, that is the end of the film, so you can imagine after watching that, I was like, how am I going to make a whole entire episode on that? You know, from watching the trailer and all that, I thought it looked like it was going to be pretty cool, pretty tense. There were no tense scenes. Everything just happened. You didn't care about any of the characters or what was going on. And it all that shit was removed as you were watching it. And it just, everything just was there. And then it wasn't. And I didn't give a shit one way or the other. So that's my humble opinion that uh, this movie just wasn't good. Sorry. So to save this episode... I decided, what can I do? Well, I'll stick with the ocean theme. I'll try to see what I can find. And what came up? Well, the Lovecraft retelling of Dagon. Love me some Lovecraft. Love me some Dagon. I even got a Dagon tattoo or a Deep Ones tattoo. I don't know. I guess I'd have to ask one to know who exactly it is. But there's a picture of some type of fish, humanoid thing, tattooed on my body in honor of that story. So, now we're going to talk about Dagon. Let's get into it. Dagon is a 2001 film. The director was Stuart. The director was Stuart. Fuck, can't say Stuart. 
The director was Stuart Gordon. He did The Dentist 1 and 2. He did Castle Freak. He did From Beyond, Reanimator, uh, apparently a lot of ER episodes, the series ER, if anyone remembers that. And he seemed to have worked on a lot of the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids spinoff. So not the original movie, but all the little ones that came after it, like I Shrunk Myself, I Shrunk the Cat, I Shrunk the Mailman, all that other shit that came out. So he worked on those things. are pretty cool. And I will say that this film very much has that reanimator, animator feel to it. Same type of theme, same type of, you know, tongue-in-cheek, not too serious, but some pretty good gore and violence that goes along with it. It's It was a cool film. Lots of fun. I did like this movie, and yeah, it definitely saved the night for me. Uh, looked up some of the actors on here. I don't recognize them from anything, but they all did a great job. The writer, however, uh, Dennis Paoli, he worked on Ghoulies too. Yeah, so he was a co-writer to this, and he did that. So we had a lot of good wells to pull from to make sure that this movie was going to kick ass, which it did. So the film starts up, and this it's a, it's a dream of this dude, Paul. He's scuba diving, and he touches some odd-looking walls, and they appear to turn gold when he touches them. And then this mermaid comes out of nowhere, comes up to him, and starts to pull his mask off of his face, but not in like a weird way, but more in like a I love you, let me see you kind of way. Pulls his masks off, and then all of a sudden she turns into some kind of horrible, crazy fish beast, and he wakes up in a cold sweat. Ha! Huh, fish beast! And when he wakes up, he's on a ship with a uh, with uh, an older couple and his girlfriend, I guess. I can't remember if it's his girlfriend or fiance. Maybe it was never really made clear. Or I didn't pay attention. But I'll say his girlfriend. You find out that they just got rich on a bunch of stocks and day trading type stuff. And, you know, he, right from the beginning, you can tell this looks and feels a lot like Reanimator and From Beyond, and all, which this guy worked on, Castle Freak has that same feel to it from the very beginning to the very end. And even though you know, even though it was produced in 2001, I thought it had some great vibrant colors. The I call it canned acting. And what I mean by that is it just looks very stage-like, very scripted, rehearsed lines, you know, there's nothing out of the box. There's not going to be a whole lot of improv in these lines or anything that give these people the ability to do something that feels a little bit more natural. Everything is just the way it's supposed to be for the film to look the way. You know, like uh like Saved by the Bell or Family Matters or any of those old shows back in the day, you know, those scripted sitcoms, how they look. They're not bad, but they look very, it's a package. It's a, it's a package and you know what you're going to expect and it's very consistent. And I feel like this film hits those same notes for the films that preceded it. But within the first, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, I'm already intrigued. So they hear some chanting after, so they're downstairs, he wakes up from this dream, his girlfriend's over there just trying to be sweet to him, like, hey, relax, we're on vacation, we don't need to worry about work, you need to de-stress and all this kind of stuff, and then like mid-blow Jay, he decides to throw her off of him to check his portfolio, and um, so she responds in kind by taking his laptop, going up on the top deck and tossing it into the ocean. Now while she's doing this and they're having an argument, the older couple is just kind of sitting back sipping on some martinis or some champagne or whatever and just kind of laughing at him like oh you remember when we used to love each other like that and she's like well i would have threw you in the ocean <laughs> and whatever is going on so they have this kind of pointless conversation and then they start to hear some odd chanting from the town that they can see from where they're at they're not like out in the middle of the ocean they're about to come up to this bay area and from the town they start to hear this uh you know light chanting but it sounds like a lot of people well while they're being curious about all that a storm shows up and out of nowhere they crash into a rock that's kind of in the middle of the ocean they start taking on water the older lady appears to be trapped she can't get loose so the husband's like i'll stay with her you guys go get help and they take a little 
skipper or whatever it's called. They take a little raft and they go into town. And I have to say that this town, this is supposed to be the town of Innsmouth, I guess, from the story. It looks great. It looks exactly how you would imagine. Like when you read the story in your mind, what you're picturing, they did a great job because this town looks exactly fucking like well, while they're gone and trying to find someone, it cuts back to the couple on the boat. It shows her blood kind of leaking into the water and mixing with the water. And then all of a sudden it's mixing with this black murky stuff. And something comes for her and she screams. And boo, we cut back to the couple in the town. So remember, there's this town, there's this storm going on. And they're still hearing this chanting. Everything is soaking wet. The roads, I mean, everything is just sloppy wet. It looks fucking awful. I have to be out in the storm. They're trying to figure out where it's come from. And they go to a building that says the Esoteric Order of Dagon. Yeah, just like in the story, right? Okay, <laughs> cool. Now here's the thing. In the story, uh, the Innsmouth is in Massachusetts, I'm pretty sure. But here I don't think it is. It's in some type of town uh, in España is what the girlfriend says. And looking at the actors and all that, they all have names that would correlate with that so I don't know why maybe they just did that because that's where they were filming so they decided to make it somewhere else besides Massachusetts I don't know but anyway that will be a little part that's different when you watch this so for people that want it to be like true to the story it is gonna take some liberties here and there anyway they bang on the church door and all of a sudden the chanting stops and what's cool about the chanting in this part is you almost forget that it was going on just because of all the sound of the storm and everything else but when they bang on it and it stops it does something audibly you know, to, to you watching, that's pretty cool. Kind of snaps you out of it. You're like, oh shit, I was kind of in this weird Dagon trance, you know, with these people chanting. So, uh, yeah, the sound stops. They open the door, they go in, and they find one priest. And this guy looks weird already. I mean, he looks off. He's, he's all pasty white and just looks drained of all of his blood. But he agrees to help them. And they go to a dock to get a ride from these two seamen. <laughs> and I love the look of these... You can tell these are kind of the hybrid, you know, deep one, half human, half deep one type people. They're all covered up, you know, they're wearing stuff that covers their head and their ears. It's going to be their gills, you know, for those in the know. And these, these dudes kind of like reluctantly agree to take them on the boat to go back to try to rescue their friends that are still trapped out in this sinking boat where she's bleeding and try to rescue their friends or whatever. So he gets on the boat and for whatever reason no she's going to get on the boat and he says you can only take one of you one of you needs to stay here and the priest gives him some kind of weird you know excuse like well one of you has to stay here so i can go to the police and contact them we can try to figure out what's going on and the guy's like you know what i'll go you stay here with him i'll go on the boat and she's like but you're scared of boats or some shit or whatever and you know i don't know what i'm trying to say here. it's not that i mean it's a horror movie right but we're already having weird stuff happen, but everything is such, like, bright colors and and kind of lighthearted in a way. Sort of, you know, kind of how Evil Dead is. You have all this stuff that's going on that's light and airy and kind of uh, a goofy mood, I guess. But there's still violent shit happening, you know. Like, she's got her leg bleeding and they're drowning in this boat. They go out here. There's some kind of cult chanting out there. you got these weird fish people. And... When he gets on the boat, he gets hung up on this fish hook that digs into his hands. a pretty gnarly scene because they're just using special effects. No CGI with this hook where he's trying to dig it out of his hand. And it's like, oh, fuck, if you don't like needles, you know, you're going to love that part. But anyway, like I said, already at this point, this movie's getting pretty awesome. Oh, and let me say a little side note here that if you don't know, Arkham was a town in the original Shadow Over Innsmouth story written by Lovecraft back in like 1936. And the first Batman comic was written in 1939. So is this the history of our beloved insane asylum? 
Of course it fucking is, right? <laughs> so suck it, bat boy. And anyway, uh, I read on Reddit somewhere that it could also be some old English interpretation of a word that means bad village or something like that. But, you know, it's on Reddit, so I can't really prove it. But you can Google it and you can argue on the Reddit board and, you know, figure out for yourself whether you believe one way or the other. But HP supposedly based it on Salem, Massachusetts. But who, who, you know what? Who the fuck knows? It's a good story. Let's move on. The boyfriend comes back and he goes to a hotel where the girlfriend was earlier and this dude is mute. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't talk. And they keep asking him questions. The guy can't say anything. Well, when he turns to finally get keys for a room, that's when Paul sees all these get the gills on the side of his neck and he freaks out, but decides that maybe he's just kind of delirious from everything that's going on. He gets his room keys and he goes up and ends up passing out and has another vision of this mer lady. So after waking up from this vision, he looks outside and it looks like the whole damn town has shown up to chase his ass. Pretty good chase scene, uh, very much like the story itself, which was one of the better parts of the story I remember was the chase scene. So they chase him around and he has this uh, part where he talks to the drunk and he kind of gets the lowdown on the place about what's really going on here. Oh, but there is this cool scene where he's in a warehouse and he's trying to hide out, you know, from the townspeople trying to catch him and stuff and there's all these bodies like all this human skin being stretched across boards and salted and dried out and their faces you know like it's just it's a real it looks really cool it's really just kind of this macabre dark scene like I said on top of all the joking around and hokiness that's been going on it hits you with these parts of real you know kind of horror you know uh dark shit but it kind of rolls over you. You kind of digest it a certain way just because of the way the movie is directed and all that kind of stuff. But it does look really cool, all these skins laid out and being dried. Also in this warehouse, this is where he sees his buddy from the beginning, the old guy that was on the boat. You see his face all stretched out, you know, and whatever on one of these planks of wood. All right, so he runs awkwardly away and goofs his way back through the town, making mistakes that lead him two steps forward and one step back basically throughout the whole film. He ends up in the great-grandchild's house of the original Dagon worshiping priest guy and he meets the girl there that he's been having all these reoccurring dreams about so the girl from the very beginning that was the the mermaid he sees her in a bed in this house so anyway after meeting this girl and having this whole you know he's he's pretty much being like entranced by her like he can't say no he goes to the bed he's trying he's like oh i gotta find my girlfriend she's like no you gotta stay here to be with me it's destiny it's all this stuff and before you know it they're they're making out and they're kissing he's got himself a handful of some breast meat and he's kind of sliding his hand down even further and holy shit what's that on her belly it's gills so he freaks out tosses the sheets off of her and she has this huge split tail tentacle type lower half thing going on and she begs him to stay as he runs out like being totally grossed out and the whole time she's calling out for him you know like my love and all this stuff and he's like well fuck this bitch bitch and he takes off the scene of him leaving the house is absolutely hilarious it's just and that's another thing about each one of these scenes that are that happen you know in the stage design all that like each each scene is kind of a set piece and he's on the front steps and there's some random guy standing there in front of him and he's like you know kind of the enforcer i guess he's a bigger fish dude and you're like oh shit time for the fish fight and they just have this kind of three stooges scene of him kicking his ass so paul ends up kicking this fish guy in the nuts and beating him in the head with an old nokia phone before stealing his car and it's just very uh slapstickish you know like i said it's just kind of funny and it does the same thing that the Evil Dead movies do and the Reanimator and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. All those movies do where you have some pretty, like, violent horror shit going on. 
but they're having so much fun with it, you almost, you know, I don't even know what you call that. I'm sure there's a word for that type of horror, but, you know, there's people being skinned alive. There's people being turned into fish. Uh, there's all kinds of shit going on, but for some odd reason, when you have this slapstick shit going on in the middle of it, it just changes the whole attitude of the movie. It's a lot of fun, but it's just something different. All right, so then we go on, he jumps into this other house, and all of a sudden he gets surprised by this little boy, and his dad comes over there to fight him, and his dad is this, like, tentacle man. He has these big, long octopus arms, and he's trying to kill him, and Paul ends up taking, uh, I think, like a toilet bowl lid or something like that and smashing the guy over the head. Ends up killing the tentacle guy, Within the boy, who looks very human, you don't see any, like, fish parts on him, he's all sad and crying over him, and he turns to... Paul and says some shit in Spanish and you can tell he's real sad and there's a moment where I guess the director's trying to let you know that this change in everybody is generational you know whereas this child even though he's more human than tentacle dad he still is more worried about his tentacle dad being killed than he is this random stranger humanoid guy like he's not like reaching for the human guy like oh my god take me with you you know he's like oh no fucking octo dad shit you're dead so anyway that happens he runs out and oh shit they throw a fish net on him and knock him out or whatever, and he's finally been captured. He wakes up, and he's reunited with his girlfriend, who we thought was dead, because the old drunk guy that gave him the lowdown told him his girlfriend was dead. And we also see the old lady from the beginning that we thought got sucked into the ocean by whatever was under there and killed, because remember, we saw the skinned face of her husband in the little salt rack room. So we thought, you know, you assume that she was dead too. So anyway, he's in there, drunk dude's in there, old lady from the beginning and his girlfriend are all now in this one kind of makeshift prison room i guess it's all made out of wood it's not like prison bars or nothing but they're captured right they're contained so in here they find out that the men are going to be skinned and the women are for dagon to to impregnate but the old lady there's this hilarious scene with a drunk guy he's trying to tell paul like what's going on with her why she's kind of talking crazy and he says something in spanish and then all of a sudden he says to her he fuck her talking about dagon and it's just a hilarious hilarious scene and at this point, the girlfriend's freaking out. She's like, I don't want to be fucked by some big weird fish god. And she says, like, Paul, if this happens to me, you have to prom promise me you're going to kill me. Promise me you're going to kill me. And you're like, okay, this is definitely coming back around in the film somewhere because they're making a point to point, point it out. Anyway, some, some fish dudes come over. They grab the two guys. They take them to a room. They tie them up. And they bust out some gold, like, ritual fillet knives. And they start chopping up the old drunk guy. When I say chopping him up, I mean they start filleting him like a fish yes absolutely like a fish there's a lot of those puns in this movie i mean they caught him with a fish net they fillet him like a fish uh they do all these different things that you know a normal fish merchant would do to a fish so it's not subtle and it's very on purpose all right so the drunk guy we all love he gets skinned alive Really cool effects here. I liked them. They weren't overtly cheesy or anything like that. It was just the right amount of cheese to good effects and good acting and all that. And it, it looked good. And they're just about to slice Paul up when all of a sudden his mermaid lover comes in. She's in a wheelchair. She can't walk because remember she's got tentacle feet. But they're not like tentacle feet like Squidward I guess. They're more like just long, straight up just long ass tentacles. Like she can't walk on them. So she wheels in in this wheelchair. And she starts telling the priest and the other guy, like, hey, he's my lover, you can't kill him, he's special, you know, he's my love, what, all this kind of other stuff. And basically, Paul's just like, all right, well, check this out. If you let my girlfriend go, I'll be your lover. How's that sound? And she's like, you know what? Fuck your girlfriend. And he's like, well, you know what? Fuck Dagon. And she's like, okay, 
I'm done with his ass. Chop him up. And there's another funny line in this, too, because he's like, uh, Paul's like, fuck Aegon. And the, the mermaid lady's like, yes. You know, like, yeah, that is, yeah, you, you are correct. You get it. That's what's going to happen. He's going to bang your girlfriend and make fish babies that will live forever, for eternity. All right, so anyway, there's a lot of good corny one-liners, and they're one-liners with purpose, you know, in movies like this. Uh, again, like I said, it's kind of got that Evil Dead vibe where things like that happen. And if I didn't say it already, I can't remember if I brought this up, but the sounds of the fish people are done really well, so the sound effects are cool because you can tell that as they're going through the town or searching for them in a room or something, that the sounds are just kind of distorted samples of actual aquatic animals like dolphins and stuff and and water ocean type sounds. So I thought that was a nice touch. Very cool. All right. So again, Merlady is like, chop him up. Paul's like, not about that life. He ends up getting free. Somehow he escapes. And the fish people aren't really that strong on their own. So anytime Paul escapes, because he's not a big guy in this film, but he just ha he does heroic shit by just never stopping, like trying to escape, like a little, like a like a rat in a maze. Like you just can't catch him. He just keeps going, and he keeps you know punking out these fish guys. And he, he grabs the fillet knife, and he's gonna cut the priest guy up. He's like, you know, come on, you know, you want some of this or whatever. So, because uh, he's kind of losing it too, just because all the wild shit he's seeing. All right, so he ends up stabbing this priest, you know, like akimbo with, with these ritual knives or whatever. And then he's on his way to find his girlfriend to figure out where she's at. And, oh boy, does he find her. He finds her, as the kids say, booty hole naked, chained up to this device that lowers her into this water pit. And um, before he got there, it shows a scene of the mermaid lady... Like cutting her up, kind of bleeding her, like like somebody would do with bait. You know, like if you ever gone fishing with live bait, you know, if you bleed it or something to kind of chum the water, so to say. That's what Merlady is doing to Paul's girlfriend before she puts her on the chain, and starts lowering her down into this pit. All right, so we get a bunch of boob scenes in this, and then Paul busts in and he just gets to torch in this place. No questions, no big monologue. He's just got a can full of gas and his girlfriend's lighter, which is another thing that's gone throughout the whole film. And he just starts laying these fish people to waste, torching everybody up. But we find out, guess what, Paul? Sorry, homie, it's too late. Your girlfriend's already been dumped into the ooze. She's already down there with the deep ones and Dagon getting busy. And he does his best to save her. He rear he wheels her back up using this like big crank thing that they got. And she comes to the top and she's covered in all this black ichor, you know, just dripping with it. And I have to say, is that is that supposed to be like Dagon, you know, uh, what's the what's a good word for it? Spunk? Schism? I don't know. I don't know. But she's covered in it and it's weird. And she's looking at him, and he's like, oh, you know, I got you, I saved you, whatever. And, of course, she just looks him in the eye, and here's the callback. She says, you promised, Paul. You promised, kill me, kill me. Well, before he has a chance, because he's like, no, I love you. Uh. Before he has a chance to, uh, some Dagon tentacles come up, and they pull her down off the chains, leaving nothing but her arms hanging in the restraints. Pretty cool scene. I think it's the only time I remember seeing CGI in the whole thing. And, and yeah, that's, you know which is not great CGI, but it didn't take away from the film because, like I said, it hadn't been taking itself really that serious throughout the whole thing, so you just kind of accept it. It's not bad. It's a cool scene. So after she gets taken down in the water, Paul is once again surrounded for, like, the fifth time in this film by a bunch of fish people. And here is where we find out that Paul is actually the son of a deep one. What? And the mer-girl is his sister from another mother, and it is their destiny to be together. And yes, you heard that right. 
Now, of course, if you know the stories, you kind of already are waiting for this thing to come out or for this to happen or to see if they're going to completely leave it out, which they didn't. So this is our big reveal here at the end. And they're telling Paul that, hey, you know, we're going to go down into the water. We're going to live for eternity. You're going to be with me forever. And this is going to be awesome. Well, Paul's like, not happening. He starts dousing himself with all that kerosene or gas or whatever that can is that he's been torching everybody with. And he holds the lighter up and poof, he lets it rip. So Paul just, is, he's like engulfed in flames and he's burning alive right there. Well, you know, his fish sister wife is not having this. She jumps out of her wheelchair. She slithers over to him and straight line man tackles him right down into this hole. So down they go together, of course, extinguishing the flames. And she goes down there to grab him. And he, this is a pretty cool effect here because he's all torched up. Like it shows him in the water and his face is all scarred and burned. And, you know, he's got burnt flesh all over his arms. It's really cool makeup design for this scene, I thought. And he's kind of got some panic on his face and his sister goes over there to him. Or I guess it'd be half sister or whatever, but goes over there to him. She's trying to like comfort him or whatever. And he's starting to panic. Well, then he starts breathing and he realizes, hold the fuck up a second. I'm breathing underwater and you look down and all his gills have come out on his belly and now he's breathing underwater and he kind of succumbs to the fact that he is now one of the fish people and he goes and swims off into the black abyss with his half-sister queen wife accepting his fate and it's a great scene it's a great scene because he's all charred up and crispy and all this weird, bizarre, macabre shit is happening and that's the end of the film and I thought it was a good, you know, good ending super cool so like I said, I thought it was a good movie. It definitely saved the night for me. It's more of one of those summer horror party kind of flicks. You know, it's not anything that's going to scare the pants off of your thing. It's just something that's a lot of fun to watch, which I enjoy. And another thing, too, is I thought it stayed, you know, close enough to the source material. It didn't just pull from the Dagon. It was also the, uh, the Innsmouth story and all that other stuff that it pulled from to make this movie. But, yeah, that was cool. I think you'll like it. But that is our episode for today. And let's see, October is coming up fast. I got a great idea for October. I hope you guys are going to like it, or you'll either absolutely hate it one way or the other. We'll find out here in about two weeks. Hopefully, our next couple of episodes, I'm hoping to squeeze in a guest before October comes around. We'll see. So look forward to that. You can find me on Instagram. Hit me up there. You can email me at justjameshorrorpodcast at gmail.com. And again, this is the Just James Horror Review. I'm your host, Just James. Feast for Felines by Jonathan Andrashek. The dozen cats mewled again. Ah, for fuck's sake! I groaned. Should have never adopted all these fuckers. But I had a big heart. I couldn't help it. I hopped out of bed and stomped to the door, yanking it open. I'm coming! I grumbled. Several furry figures zoomed in front of me, tripping me. I cried out and tumbled down the staircase. Bones cracked, and I landed with a resounding crunch. With demonic eyes glinting 
the cat slapped at crimson and nibbled at the giant pumping piece of meat jutting from their previous owner's chest until they were finally Well, I hope you like that. That's from the book Bits and Pieces by Jonathan Edward Andrashek. Again, the name of that story is A Feast for Felines. We'll be doing a review of this coming up soon. I just thought I'd read a little something out of it because it's got a lot of shorts. I hope you enjoyed.